This is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, with expert advice from Pittsburgh CPA, attorney, and retirement and estate planning expert, Jim Lang, the best-selling author of Retire Secure and The Roth Revolution, Pay Taxes Once and Never Again. Now, let's talk smart money. And welcome to the Lang Money Hour. I'm Dan Weinberg, along with CPA and attorney Jim Lang. Late last summer, as the presidential campaign entered its home stretch, Robertson Williams of the Tax Policy Center joined us to talk about Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump's tax policy proposals. With President Trump now in office, we welcome him back to the Lang Money Hour this week to talk about what's happened since his last appearance when it comes to taxes. Robertson Williams is the Saul Price Fellow at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center at the Urban Institute, where he focuses on communicating the Tax Policy Center's broad range of work. Twice given the Urban Institute President's Award for Communication, Bob has spearheaded the Tax Policy Briefing Book, overseen development of interactive tax returns, and four tax policy center tax calculators, and written the popular whiteboard video, Debunking Myths About Who Pays No Federal Income Tax. Before joining Urban, Bob worked in the Congressional Budget Office from 1984 through 2006. Over the next hour, Bob and Jim will talk about what we could see in the months and years ahead in terms of tax policy and how it might be the same or different from what Donald Trump promised on the campaign trail and what that all might mean to you as investors and Americans. So with that, let's say hello to Jim Lang and Robertson Williams. Welcome, Bob. Thank you. You did a great job last time, and it is important for our listeners to know that you truly are a bipartisan um, commentator. You're not here to try to talk us into anything. You're not promoting a liberal or a conservative viewpoint. You're saying, hey, this is what is going on. And I actually thought that you did a remarkably good job of being objective and letting people know, let's say, what might be coming, because, of course, we're predicting the future, um, but not trying to promote one viewpoint or another. So I sure appreciate that. Well, let me modify things one bit. Rather than being bipartisan, we consider ourselves nonpartisan. We don't okay, take that's any even better. one way or the other. And that's important in uh, this current economic and political climate. Okay, that's that's even better. I like that, non, nonpartisan. So, so right now, here we are. Um, we have, uh, for whatever reason and, and for whoever you want to blame, we did not have a major health care reform, which was, let's say, the president's first priority. And we have been hearing, both during the campaign and recently, well, we're interested in tax reform, we're interested in infrastructure. Um, on the other hand, he came out of the bat, uh, you know, with a, let's say, a legislation legislative failure. What can we expect in terms of tax reform, when it's going to come, when it's going to look like... Um, so I'll, I'll kind of leave a little bit of an open-ended question, and then we'll, I'll probably be more specific after I hear some of your answers. Well, that's really a $64,000 question. What will the timing be on another health bill or a tax reform bill, and what form will the tax bill take when it appears? Right now, following the collapse of the health plan, the administration is somewhat in disarray about how to proceed. Some talk is of trying to resurrect the health plan and get it done first. That's important from a legislative perspective because repealing the Affordable Care Act gets rid of some tax revenues that otherwise would have to be taken into account when they do tax reform. So 
it's a question uh, on the budget side. Can we get rid of the revenue collection ahead of doing a tax bill, or does it have to be part of that? That said, the likelihood of getting a health plan agreement among Republicans seems fairly slim. There doesn't seem to be any plan that will attract a majority of Republicans or enough Republicans to overcome the Democratic opposition, which will be united. So we're likely instead to see focus on a tax bill. The question is, what will that tax bill look like? And there are two major possibilities. One is we have a single major tax reform that combines individual tax reform with corporate tax reform. The alternative is splitting those in two pieces, doing corporate tax reform first, where there's probably more agreement on how to do it, and then turning to individual income tax changes. On the corporate side, the main arguments are we have too high a tax rate and we have too many loopholes within the corporate tax system. We should clean out the loopholes, lower the rates, bring ourselves more in line with the rest of the world. The top United States corporate tax rate now is 35%. That's higher than any other developed country in the world. When we first cut the top rate to 35% in 1986, our rate was lower than most other developed countries. In the intervening years, other countries have lowered their rates and we're now at the top of the heap. That doesn't mean that corporations pay 35% of their income in taxes. That's the statutory rate, the rate on the last dollars of income. But because of all the tax breaks and losses that are carried forward and so forth, many corporations pay fairly low taxes or no taxes at all. In fact, a study by the Governmental Accounting Office a few years ago showed that nearly two-thirds of corporations paid no federal corporate income tax in the previous year mostly because they had had losses that offset any positive income. In any case, the typical tax rate actually paid by corporations is more like 15 to 20 percent, not the 35 percent statutory rate that many face. Uh, more important to most individuals, it's what's going to happen to the individual income tax, the tax returns that we all filed this past week. There's general agreement among Republicans that tax rates are too high and we need to bring them down. Currently, the top tax rate is 39.6%, plus a few add-ons that can bring it up into the mid-40s. Uh, the idea among Republicans is to bring the statutory rate down to 33%. Both the House Republican tax plan under Speaker Ryan and the president's proposal during the campaign called for a top rate of 33%. Both the House Republicans and the president have proposed reducing our current individual income tax rate structure from seven rates, ranging from 10% to 39.6% today, down to just three rates, 12%, 25%, and 33%. Those reductions in rates require some increase in taxable income in order to avoid losing much revenue. And the way both plans would go about that would be changing the deductions and exemptions people can get and getting rid of some special preferences built into the code. The preferences that they would get rid of haven't been spelled out in detail. There's certainly uh, a lot of room between here and legislation to itemize those. But what they have said is let's raise the standard deduction. In the case of the president raised it to $15,000 for individuals, $30,000 for couples. 
in the case of the Republican plan, raise it to $25,000 for individuals and 50000 for couples. Both of those would mean that many, many fewer people would itemize their deductions than they do today. Right now, about 30% of taxpayers itemize. By our estimate, the president's plan would reduce that number to only about 12% of people itemizing. And the Republican House plan would reduce it to about 5%. Much, much larger standard deduction means there's no good reason to itemize all those costs, state and local taxes, uh, contributions that you've made, uh, mortgage interest payments. The other thing that both plans would do would be get rid of individual and personal exemptions, the $4,000 that you can reduce our taxable income for each member of your family. On balance, the higher standard deduction and elimination of the exemptions means that most people's taxes would go down. And combined with the lower rates, most people's taxes would go down substantially, although the tax cuts are much, much larger for wealthy people than for individuals. There are a couple other pieces that are important. Uh, on the president's side, he would lower the corporate tax rate to 15% and allow individuals who report business income on their individual tax returns, that is people who are in partnerships or sole proprietorships, uh, who have reporting business income as pass-through entities on their own tax returns, would be allowed to use corporate tax rates in face of rate no higher than 15%. That's certainly a lot better than the 33% top tax rate that he proposed for ordinary income, and might well mean that a lot of people currently who are employees would try to recharacterize their income as business income. I know I, for one, would immediately go to the Tax Policy Center and say, rather than being an employee, I'd like you to make me a contractor. I'd, I'd like to be a contractor and have my own little business called Robert and Williams Incorporated, uh, not incorporated, and uh, have you pay me that way. That way I can call myself a business and face a maximum tax rate of 15%. Uh, whether the uh, IRS uh, and Congress could figure ways to stop people from doing that is a good question, but if they don't, there's a potential for huge revenue loss to people turning themselves into businesses instead of employees. So, so you've mentioned a couple things where we have a I much, bunch of things. <laughs> yeah. So we have a much higher standard deduction um, that will be partially offset by the loss of exemptions. Um, business income will be taxed much lower, and even individuals such as myself with a business who would say, let's say, normally report income at the top tax bracket would get the benefit of paying it at fifteen percent. Um, yep. So that that sounds great. Um, where everything but the federal treasury. <clears throat> All right. Well, that's what I'm getting to. Yeah, we'll and, get and and you said, well, it doesn't look like health care is going to pass, so we're not going to see substantial savings on the health care. How are we going to pay for all these tax cuts, and how realistic? I mean, to me, I can't even imagine that Congress would say, okay, businesses, you can now pay at 15 percent, and uh, the the uh, Robertson Williams. Uh, LLC that now files a subchapter S makes a deal with his employer that he's now a little business. I, I have a hard time picturing that passing. On the on the other hand, I've a I've been very wrong before in my predictions. Um, I think you're absolutely right. I think the likelihood of it happening is very uh, is very low right now in Washington. There's no single Republican tax plan. There are really three tax plans potentially going to appear before Congress. 
One that's fairly well fleshed out and has been reported on is the House GOP tax plan put together by Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, and by Kevin Brady, the chair of the Ways and Means Committee. Their plan would cut rates, get rid of a lot of loopholes built into the tax system right now, and by our estimate, lose about $3 trillion of revenue over the next 10 years. They argue that we don't have their plan defined quite correctly, that they wouldn't lose nearly that much money, and that they would make up the revenue loss in more rapid economic growth. But 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 as a nonpartisan institute, you guys have done some studies, and you think that they're going to lose $10 trillion. So no matter what those guys say, on a nonpartisan basis, you're saying, no, we're going to lose $10 trillion. Well, we, we estimate the, the House GOP plan would lose about $3 trillion over 10 years. And oh, $3 trillion, I'm sorry. By our estimate, the House GOP tax plan would lose about $3 trillion of revenue over 10 years. They argue that they would be smaller than that because we don't have the details of their plan right, and economic growth would make up much of the revenue loss. When we do a macroeconomic analysis or a dynamic analysis of their plan, we find that they might make up a little bit of the loss over the first 10 years, but because they're borrowing so much money and competing with private firms for investment funds, the economy might actually grow less quickly and the revenue effects might be actually worse. The president has a different plan. In fact, he has a number of different plans. He proposed one in late 2015 that we analyzed as losing about $10 trillion of revenue over 10 years. He revised that during the course of the campaign uh, to bring it somewhat in line with the House Republican plan, matching their rates and getting rid of some of the more extreme aspects of his plan. But we still found that that would lose about $7 trillion over 10 years. And while his economic advisors suggest that we, there will be other aspects of his economic program that will make up for that loss, uh, and economic growth will make up a lot of the revenue loss, uh, we again find that if you do dynamic analysis, that the plan will lose more money over time as a result of slower economic growth than would otherwise occur, because the deficits incurred by the government would require borrowing, it would draw money out of the private sector and slow economic growth. The third potential plan is from the Senate Finance Committee under Senator Hatch. Uh, that plan is currently being formulated, uh, but there's no public version of it available yet. We don't really know what the details will look like. But the bottom line is we've got three different plans being put together. One is fairly well-defined in the House of Representatives. One is less well-defined, but under uh, construction in the White House. And one is not very well-known at all, but being put together in the Senate. Which of those will be the initial instrument used to start the tax reform is a good question. The president thinks it should be his plan. Uh, Speaker Ryan thinks the House Republican plan makes sense. By constitution, all tax laws have to start in the House of Representatives, so he's Speaker Ryan has a leg up on the president, but we know from experience, from history, that it's going to take an accommodation among all three actors, Senator Hatch, chair of the Finance Committee, uh, Kevin Brady is chair of the Ways and Means Committee, and President Trump, the three of them working together to come up with some compromise plan that will be pushed through. 
The big problem is there's a lot of disagreement on what the plan's going to look like, and the three plans could look very, very different. Until there is some agreement, we're not going to see much happening at all on the legislative front, and it could be well into the summer, fall, or even next year before a plan materializes in form that Congress will actually consider. All right, so let's do a quick summary of where we are, at least from my summary of where we stand. There's three potential plans. They're not clear. Two of them are not clearly defined. One we don't know much about at all. But it sounds like what we're talking about is reduced rates, particularly for those at the top, um, higher standard deductions, lower exemptions, and less less loopholes, if you will, and all the plans that you have talked about um, on a part on a nonpartisan basis that you have analyzed will lose a lot of tax revenue for the country that will not be made up or maybe a little bit made up by let's say additional growth, but you are afraid that the amount going out will means that the u s has to borrow so so basically, every, it sounds like everything you're talking about sounds like lower taxes if something passes, and ultimately there might be a little spurt for the economy, but we're going to have to borrow money, and that's going to be a problem. Is that a, is that a fair summary? I think it's a pretty fair summary. Uh, there are a couple of additional pieces that I haven't gotten to yet that okay. are interesting. Uh, one from your perspective that I think would be fairly important. Uh, the House Republicans talk about doing away with taxation on investment income. They no longer tax capital gains or dividends. Uh, and Now, can you picture that happening, or is that just no, like a pipe? No, I cannot run? picture that happening. Okay. But well, essentially what that, that would do would move us towards a consumption tax. By not taxing investment income, you're focusing on other income people have, uh, and that essentially translates ultimately into a tax on what people actually spend money on. Uh, and then you get to the whole border adjustments and the... Uh, question of how do you deal with imports and exports and boost uh, economic growth at home, on which there's very little agreement in Congress, but a lot of discussion. Yeah, and I, I happen to be a free trader, so I I, I understand that there's some abuses uh, going on, but I that 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 kind of thing scares me. And I'm, but 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 anyway, forgetting my personal viewpoints. Um, so what what I guess what you're Saying is, uh, and, is well, we, we could we could have. Too, and by the way, let, let me yep. let me trans, translate one thing to our listeners. When sure. you say consumption tax, maybe a bunch of people know what it is, but ultimately we're talking about a sales tax. So in Pennsylvania, for example, we are used to a depending on what county you live in, like a six or seven percent sales tax on certain areas. And now, what you are saying is one possibility is that there will be a federal. Well, you're using the word consumption. I'll just use sales tax because it's more common that that would be yeah. another possibility. Uh, effectively, that's what it would turn out to be. It would not be directly a sales tax. It would not look like it's a sales tax applied to goods, but it would, in fact, uh, the burden of the tax would fall on people who buy the goods and services. It would effectively act the same way as a sales tax does in terms of raising the cost of what people buy. Okay. It would not be, and it would have just as much visibility as uh, the excise taxes we have today. Every time you buy a gallon of gas or go buy a bottle of beer, uh, you're paying a tax to the federal government 
but you don't see the tax because it's built into the price of the gallon of gas or the beer you're buying. The same thing would be true with these taxes. They'd be built into higher prices of goods that people wouldn't see. One of the things that worries a lot of politicians is that if you don't see a tax, you're not really going to be unhappy about having it. And uh, for people who don't like taxes in general, that's not a good thing. They want people to be very aware of the taxes uh, and a hidden tax is not considered uh, politically the right thing. All right, well, well, let's get back to um, is is something likely to pass even if it takes a year? I mean, it, it sounds like, like we're not going to – it sounds like we're not going anywhere with health care is, is what you kind of said. Is it possible that there just won't be any agreement and they won't do anything? I don't think there's any question that Congress will have a tough time passing any tax act. There are a couple of reasons for this. One is the Democrats in the Senate have enough members to be able to stop any permanent tax change by filibustering. And the Senate requires 60 votes to stop a filibuster. The Democrats have, 40, um, 48, have 48 right? members, counting the two independents who generally vote with them. So that's enough to stop any permanent bill. What that means is the Republicans have to use the same legislative maneuver that was used in 2001 to get George W. Bush's tax cuts through, uh, which is called budget reconciliation. This is using the budget as a way to pass a bill, and that only requires a majority vote. The problem with that is something called the Bird Rule. Which means you have to pay for it, right? The, the Bird Rule says Specifically, if there is any budgetary effect beyond 10 years, any member can call a port of order and stop the debate on the issue. So what happened in 2001 is the tax proposals were all scheduled to expire entirely after 10 years. That way there could be no budgetary effect after 10 years. And the thought of the Republicans at the time was sometime in that period we'll be able to make these tax cuts permanent. Uh, so why not do it now while we can through the budget reconciliation process? That didn't quite happen. Uh, it happened for most people in uh, the end of 2012, uh, the wee hours of uh, New Year's Day 2013. Congress passed a bill that made most of the Bush tax cuts permanent, but not for high-income people. People at the top of the income distribution saw their Bush tax cuts disappear on New Year's Day in 2013. It's almost certain that a tax bill today would have to use the same approach, use budget reconciliation, because the Republicans just don't have enough members of the Senate to be able to stop a filibuster by Democrats. The big question is, even with that, can Republicans get the 50 votes that they need to get a budget reconciliation passed? There's enough disagreement among Republicans today about what the tax bill should look like that getting 50 of them together to agree on something could be difficult. The same problem that they were having with the health care bill in the House, they could find in the Senate with any tax bill, because it only takes three Republicans joining the Democrats to stop even a budget resolution that requires simple majority. So will we see that? It depends a lot on what the tax bills look like as they develop over the next year. 
Uh, it could come together in a few months. If there's a lot of agreement among Republicans, it could take a lot longer. Right now, it looks like nothing's going to happen until sometime late in the summer. Uh, it could again push out well into the fall or even next year. So we don't really know what that's going to be. We don't know how the Republicans might come together as a group or if they'll come together at all. And until they do, we won't have any good idea what the tax plan will look like. All right, so I'm, I'm going to try to be a little bit practical for what our listeners can take from this and one of the things that they're going to do. So, and, and tell me if what I have heard so far is incorrect. Uh, we are uncertain when we're going to have a tax bill. We're uncertain of to what it's going to look like. But the way it seems that it's going to look like is it is going to cut certainly the top rates, maybe have uh, fewer tax rates, but the the highest income um, taxpayers will will certainly get a break, and maybe even the middle class will also get a break. Um, but let's assume, and, and you don't know when it's going to pass. You said summer, fall, maybe next year. Let's assume something passes, okay? Now, I have been very much on top of the issue of what I call the death of the stretch IRA, which is the ability to defer income taxes on an inherited IRA. And the Senate Finance Committee voted 26 to nothing to basically kill that. They, they included a $450,000 per person exclusion. But it is something that would certainly be a quick hit, that is, a quick income stream generator to Washington that could potentially offset some of the reduced tax rate. So I am of the opinion, and since historically when the Senate Finance Committee votes 26 to nothing, usually that will come. So, And it usually doesn't come as a standalone bill. It usually will come as part of a larger tax bill. So the way I am thinking is, okay, I think this thing is going to come, but it's not going to come until there's going to be a larger tax bill. You're saying, hey, we're not sure what it's going to look like, um, and we're not sure when it's going to come. But the way I'm going to take that is, well, the, the proposed law will probably come, and there will be reduced tax rates. So to me, I don't know if the reduced tax rates are going to be sustainable, and I'm wondering, gee, is this an opportunity, or when they do pass whatever they're going to pass, is this going to be a good opportunity to make Roth IRA conversions on the theory that the lower tax rates will not be sustainable? You do a Roth IRA conversion at the lower rates, and then ultimately, either when Trump is out of office or when the deficit looks like it's going out of control and tax rates are raised again, um, you will have, in effect, uh, created tax-free income at a lower rate. Is something like that viable that, yes, we don't know when it's going to pass, but and maybe nothing will pass, but something will probably pass at some point, and it will lower the rates. If that does happen, could you foresee in the future, either under a different or even the same administration, them going back and raising the rates? I think you're certainly right that it's unlikely the stretch IRA provision will pass on its own. Typically, when a large tax bill is coming through, they're going to save those kinds of things, particularly if there's popularity for them. 26 to 0 sounds like a popular option. 
to save that as a sweetener to draw more people to support the larger tax bill. So saving it for part of the tax reform makes sense. Uh, lower rates will certainly make it attractive to convert to Roth plans, and people should probably think about doing so fairly quickly because, as you suggest, uh, tax rates are likely to go up in the future. The Congressional Budget Office has projected that deficits, even absent a tax cut, will go up very, very rapidly over the next decade or so as more and more baby boomers retire and start drawing Social Security and Medicare benefits. The federal deficit could be large enough that our federal debt exceeds uh, by far 100% of GDP, uh, just dwarfing the highest levels of the past, which occurred during uh, World War II, at the, the end of World War II. So it would be a pressure to get more revenues and cut government spending. Uh, getting more revenues means higher taxes, and we'll, that will make conversions much, much less attractive going forward. Uh, plus, it makes the traditional IRAs much less attractive because when you draw money out of them, you'll be paying at higher rates. So I think you're absolutely right. Uh, if they do cut tax rates in tax reform, take advantage of it while they're available because they may not last very long. Well, the, the, other, the other thing is just historically, um, <clears throat> let, let's say uh, one of the popular conservative ideas has been to cut taxes and cut spending, but nobody has been successful in cutting spending, including um, President Bush, who, let's say, was successful in cutting taxes but wasn't successful in cutting spending. And I am fearing, well, maybe the same thing is going to happen again. And I'm not the kind of guy who's necessarily worried about the United States, although I certainly am. But I'm more the kind of guy, okay, this is a likely series of events. What, you, what should you do about it? So interestingly, I'm, I'm talking about, okay, we think that this death of the stretch IRA is coming in future years. What should you be doing now about it? And that's, and I've written a book on it. I'm doing workshops on it. And I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm literally filling the room. We're turning people away. We have in the last two out of, actually three in a row, we've, we've turned people away because we just filled the room. Um, but the, the idea of that something is coming and rather than worrying about the United States, I'm probably more worried about what our individual listeners um, who are just trying to get by and, and have a secure retirement and pass on what is left in the most efficient way can do. So things like, yes, we're likely to have a tax act. Um, by my thinking, it's likely to include the death of the stretch IRA. We're likely to have a tax decrease, um, but that will in, at some point be followed by a tax increase. Well, that is that is very helpful information on long-term strategies. And I don't know if, if this is a pipe dream for me and it's just the way I think logically, or whether you on a nonpartisan basis say, hey, that's a, a reasonable potential set of events. We don't know when, we don't know the details, but that sounds like a reasonable idea. I think there are a few things we can be fairly certain about, Jim. One is that a, we're going to need more revenues going forward 
than are projected to be collected by the government. Uh, the spending will go up. The only way to control spending is to control entitlement programs, which means cutting back on Social Security and Medicare benefits, uh, reducing the size of Medicaid. Those are the big drivers of the federal budget. About two-thirds of federal spending is in entitlement programs. Only about a third of it is from discretionary programs, programs over which the Congress has annual control through appropriations. Uh, about half of that is for the military, and every indication is that the current administration, uh, with Congress blessing, will ask for more money for the military. That means you're down to about one-sixth of the budget, the non-military, non-discre- uh, non-military discretionary spending that's available for cutting, and that by itself is not enough to pay for the increased deficits we'd have our time. That is, if you cut every dollar of non-defense discretionary spending, you still wouldn't balance the budget out in the future. So we need to do something, and the most likely something is raising taxes again. It's very difficult to cut the entitlement programs because they benefit lots and lots of people. Uh, Social Security is among the most popular things the United States does. Medicare is close behind. Um, People may not like Medicaid, but that's uh, very important, keeping uh, lower-income people healthy and uh, giving them health services. So going forward, there will be a need for more revenue. The easiest way to get more revenues is to raise tax rates uh, and go after individuals, and that's likely to, to happen, as you suggest. No guarantees. Predicting the future is very difficult, and I have a very cloudy crystal ball. Uh, But I think uh, you're absolutely right in projecting future tax increases, particularly if we make major tax cuts now that will reduce revenues today and uh, in the near future. Well, by by the way, I think this is this is to me. I think is very very helpful for a lot for probably all listeners, but particularly for upper income folks to know, hey, we <clears throat> we might get a break, um, maybe be a little bit conservative about Roth IRA conversions uh, right now, but that um, be prepared to jump on them when the rates do go down because that's not going to be a permanent state of affairs. Get your Roth IRA conversion in while it's down and then um, enjoy the tax-free growth after the tax goes up. And the only way to me you're really going to be hurt by that is if they, let's say, a Steve Forbes types um, analysis where you're cutting the income tax or even eliminating it and you're replacing it with a consumption tax and or a sales tax. And it sounds like that might be another way to go, which is to increase revenue by having a consumption or sales tax. But even if that happened, I, I would have a hard time imagining that they're going to kill the income tax. I think it's difficult to predict how that will come about, the, the shift from a, an income tax to a consumption tax. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it happens somewhere out in the future. Uh, I don't think it's likely to happen in the near future simply because consumption taxes are what we refer to as regressive, a higher uh, burden on low- and middle-income households than on the wealthy because low-income households spend virtually all their income, middle-income households similarly. High-income households are the ones that put money away all the time, and um, therefore their spending is relatively low compared to their incomes, 
and uh, they will end up paying less of their income in consumption taxes than would other people, lower and middle-income people. So there's a big political issue in terms of shifting consumption tax, in terms of who bears the burden of the tax, who actually pays the tax. Uh, it would fall much more heavily on low- and middle-income households than the current income tax does, and it's hard to make it progressive. W- wouldn't, it, uh, wouldn't it be more likely that instead of switching from income to consumption or sales tax, that the consumption or sales tax would be in addition to the income tax? Yes, that's true in a lot of countries, a combination of an income tax and a sales tax. Uh, If you have an income tax combined with a value-added tax, as many European countries do, uh, in fact, we are the only uh, developed country that does not have a value-added tax, which is essentially a a sales tax or consumption tax, Uh, the combination of the two makes it possible to have a more progressive or less regressive system. Uh, The actual way that most of those countries, though, maintain progressivity is not through the revenue side, but through the spending side, by providing a lot more social services that disproportionately benefit low- and middle-income households, and therefore you're taking money from them, but you're giving back a lot more than they're paying. Uh, So the overall government system of taking revenues in and providing social services means low- and middle-income households are better off at the expense of higher-income households. So, Bob, you've given us some great information, but but ultimately in 10 minutes the show's going to be over, and some people might have additional questions. They might want to have additional resources, and it would be wonderful for our listeners to have a nonpartisan source of information. Could you tell us a little bit about your the what you what your organization does and what the contact information is and how best listeners could potentially take advantage of this information? The Tax Policy Center was created to provide a source of unbiased information about the tax system, how it works, how it might be changed, how it might be improved. You can go to our website at taxpolicycenter.org, taxpolicycenter, all one word, .org, and you'll find a range of resources available. What might be most interesting during this time of uh, tax legislation or potential tax legislation is a new feature that we've just brought out that explains a lot of features of the tax system and how they affect people and how they might change or might be changed by Congress in legislation now. To find that, go to our website, uh, click on Features, and you'll find something about looking at tax uh, policy changes. There are uh, individual articles on things like how taxes affect the distribution of income, uh, how tax rates of work, how different tax pieces work, and you might find that uh, very informative. In general, we have lots and lots of papers and estimates of what would happen, as well as tax, tax statistics. You can find out tax history of what tax rates have been over time, uh, revenues from different sources, and so forth. Just uh, browse around our website and see what you can find. All right, and can you tell the, our listeners the website one more time, and then we will... It's tech- The website is Tax Policy Center, all one word, taxpolicycenter.org, O-R-G, taxpolicycenter.org. All right. And, of course, my suggestion uh, to your organization that your president or whoever is in charge would veto is the crystal ball section, which says what what you think is going to happen, which is, frankly, what I've been 
trying to get out of you today and you've you've been very politic and saying well this is what might happen but but anyway the the, the last area that um that I think bears um a good use of our time is that my profession that is the estate planning attorney's profession is still to this day very very concerned with estate or transfer taxes so i know it used to be like a sixty thousand dollar exclusion when i was really practicing in earnest it was a six hundred thousand dollar exclusion now we have a 5.4 million dollar exclusion with portability that means a married couple can transfer 10.8 million dollars um, at their deaths to their uh, to whoever their heirs are, but presumably children and grandchildren. What is going on with the um, exclusion, either from a gift tax standpoint or an estate tax plan, uh, with some of the proposals that you have seen? Well, every Republican candidate for president in the last election, including, of course, Donald Trump, proposed eliminating, repealing in, in its entirety the estate tax. The details differed across the plans. Uh, the proposal by the president was one of getting rid of the tax, but also getting rid of step-up and basis, so that you would end up actually having to pay tax on the unrealized capital gains in an estate upon the death of the uh, owner. Uh, that means that you would no longer make sense to hold your uh, capital gains until death in hopes of their disappearing to the uh, step up in basis, uh, although there would be an exemption to eliminate that for lower income or lower value to states. And I think the proposal was to use the same as the current exemption for the estate tax, $5.4 million for individuals and double that for couples. So only the larger estates with capital gains would be affected by the tax going forward, and only as a capital gains tax, not as an estate tax. We do away with generation skipping. Uh, taxes. Uh, they would do away with the gift taxes as well. And the biggest problem with this is it uh, then opens up opportunities to turn ordinary income into uh, capital gains that uh, then see very little taxation or much lower taxation upon death. Uh, so we'll, we'll have to see whether that goes anywhere. Um, it would change the number of people affected by the estate tax, obviously, reducing it to zero. Uh, people actually seeing an estate tax, because there would be no estate tax per se. Uh, that's not much of a reduction right now. Only about two-tenths of one percent of deaths result in a taxable estate. Uh, that's uh, just a, a few thousand estates every year, uh, as opposed to the seven and a half percent of estates that were subject to tax back in the mid-1970s when the exclusion was only $60,000. That's the lowest it ever was in real terms uh, since we had the estate tax uh, back in the early 20th century. And how, how realistic is this that you think that they will pass this, or do you think that they'll just bump up the exclusion even higher? Uh, I, the real issue with regard to the state tax is the revenue loss and fairness. Those are the two issues that will be raised. The revenue loss is only 25 or $30 billion a year. Uh, it's, that's real money, serious money, but it's not very large in the scheme of a $4 trillion budget. Less than 1% of the budget is coming from that source. Uh, so the revenue part is not a major issue, although certainly it's more than just rounding error. 
the bigger question is the fairness one. Uh, should people be allowed to pass on very, very large uh, estates to their heirs without any taxation whatsoever? Um, and there it becomes a philosophical question. Should there be some balancing of things across generations? Uh, and what are the effects of that on economic behavior? Do people behave differently because of the estate tax? Would they be more likely to invest and grow businesses if they were not in estate tax? Uh, would they be more likely to spend money? Uh, but what do they do? And we don't really know because uh, different models give different results. All right. The, the other thing that you mentioned, uh, you talked about the um, if that happened, there would be an elimination of the step-up in basis, the good news for most of our listeners who don't have uh, $10 million or more is that it wouldn't presumably have an impact for them. What is the impact or what is the potential changes to the capital gains rates? Um, are we going to have a graduated capital gains rates? I've heard that was one possibility. We're going to have an elimination. Are we going to ha- not have any changes? Do you have uh, a crystal ball on, on what's going to happen with capital gains? There are two differences between what's been proposed by President Trump and what's been proposed by the House Republicans. Uh, the president would not change the capital gains tax rates. He leaves them at uh, the current 0, 15, and 20 percent. That uh, depending on your income, uh, he would get rid of the net investment income tax associated with the Affordable Care Act, the 3.8% Medicare tax tacked on to investment income prior income people, so that would reduce capital gains taxes for those individuals. That's part of the health plan. Uh, the House Republican plan is quite different. They would, instead of having a different rate for capital gains and qualified dividends, as for ordinary income, they would instead say you can exclude 50% of the income from those sources, effective, and then they're taxed at regular income rates. So if you're in the 33% tax bracket, you only tax half of your gain. Effectively, that makes the tax rate half of 33 or 16.5%. People in the 25% bracket would pay 12.5%. People in the 15% bracket would pay just uh, 7.5%. Or sorry, the 12% bracket, that's the bottom bracket, would pay just 6%. Uh, so there would be graduated rates under the House Republican plan, uh, each rate being half that of the ordinary rates being proposed. And, and again, as a tax planner, the, the way I would be thinking is, okay, let's say that I have some highly appreciated assets. Let's say I have less than $10 million, so I would get step-up in basis relief. But if this plan or some variation of this plan does pass, then maybe what I should do is take advantage of it, um, cash in my – uh, some of my highly appreciated assets, and then um, when the rates go back up again, I will have, in effect, got rid of some of my embedded capital gains. It certainly makes sense if you think tax rates are going, going to be low for a short period of time to take advantage of those lower rates in anticipation of avoiding them when rates go up in the future. And thanks so much to both Jim and Robertson Williams for that great discussion of where the government might be headed in terms of tax policy. And listeners, if you'd like to meet with Jim Lang in person, give the Lang Financial Group a call at 412-521-2732 to see if you qualify for a free initial consultation. That's 412-521-2732 or connect with Jim's office through his website at paytaxeslater.com. 
Com. Special thanks to our producer, Amy Valella. And for now, I'm Dan Weinberg. For Jim Lang, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time for another edition of the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Thanks for listening to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Check out our show archives and listen on demand anytime at paytaxeslater.com. Our radio listeners can receive free tickets to Jim Lang's Pittsburgh area workshops and more. Call the Lang Financial Group at 412-521-2732 to reserve your seats and meet Jim Lang in person. Or visit paytaxeslater.com. That's paytaxeslater.com. We'll